Hi, I'm Mark, the Membership Sales Manager here at the Geographical Association. Just before we get into this week's episode of JogPod, I'd like to encourage you to consider joining us. JogPod is produced by the Geographical Association. There are many reasons to be a member of the GA, the Association for All Teachers of Geography. Not only do you receive our professional journals each term, but you also get access to great quality resources, lesson planning ideas, and a huge archive dating back to 1901. But there's also help with the new education inspection framework and curriculum planning, alongside discounts on books, maps, and classroom tools. I hope you will consider joining the GA and adding your voice to ours as the voice of geography in education. Please visit our website, geography.org.uk, to join today. Now, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of JogPod. Welcome to JogPods, the Geographical Association podcast series. Today I'm talking to Margaret Roberts, 24 years PGC lead at Sheffield University and president of the Geographical Association from 2008 to 2009. Welcome, Margaret. It's a great pleasure to have you in the Thank you. In today. Um, you've had such a tremendous influence on the teaching of geography in that time, the number of teachers that you have nurtured and developed and all the writing that you've put together. I just wondered if you could give us a bit of a story from you completing your, your geography degree to to now, really. Okay. Um, yes, after completing my geography degree, I did a PTC course at the Institute of Education, University of London, but that wasn't a big influence on me. What was, was my first, well, there were three big influences. One was the first school I taught in for six years. Next was a research project I was involved in. And next were the school council projects. If I say a bit about each of those. The first school I taught in was in North London. It was a a grammar school that went comprehensive almost as soon as I went there, mixed. And there was only one geography teacher who wasn't very interested in either teaching or geography. So the person who took me under his wing was the head of English, who was someone called Douglas Barnes. And he got very... uh, The head of geography said, you just do what you like. So I had to experiment. And Douglas Barnes got interested with the way I was working, but introduced me to... Um, language across the curriculum which had just started then and the importance of the students making sense of what they were doing through talking and writing. So he invited me to a conference on classroom talk which wasn't particularly uh, fashionable in those days, it was usually you shut them up, but the importance of getting kids to talk to make sense and uh, he got me involved with the London Association of Teachers of English and it was through them that I read Vygotsky who influenced my the importance of using talk to connect what children knew already with the new stuff that they were going to learn that you needed to make connections to enable them to make sense and writing um, rather than just reproducing things 
Right, so what I got from that first influence was the importance of making sense. Somehow in the classroom, it wasn't just about transmission. The, the students had to make sense through being active in some way, and I got involved in group work, because if it's class, one person talking at a time in a class, people don't get much chance to talk, so they introduced me to uh, group work. And so that was one of the influences that I took into my next, I was there for six years, and uh, developed that through group work, looking at resources, I remember pictures, we used to get pictures from the Japanese embassy, photo sets and films, but lots and lots of talk. Then I went to um, the Resources for Learning project, which is based in London, um, a two-year research job, where the job was to produce resources for teachers in six London, or was it three London schools to use, on humanities. And they'd chosen a theme, which was America, and it had to be for history as well as geography teachers. And by the end, everyone thought I was a historian because I was so worried about upsetting the history people. Anyway, what that project was about was um, about children being inactive. And the person who was um, in charge of the project, Taylor, wrote this. We impose on adolescents in their most active years a relative stillness few of us as adults could sustain and we enforce it with an apparatus of entreaties and commands. So the project was to explore different ways of working in a classroom. What if a team of people, so I was one of a team of six, produced resources and students weren't always dependent on the teacher and could actually be more active. So again, it reinforced what I'd got through my first influence. Again, it was, but it was emphasizes using resources and getting information from resources and making them giving them um, instructions on how to use the resources. So that influenced me. The whole project, I think probably the only research project that did, moved up en masse to Countersault College, um, Leicestershire, which was a progressive, comprehensive school. And with uh, one of the most influential people from both the Resources for Learning project and Countersault College, Michael Armstrong, who was very interested in how children learn. So the emphasis was on learning rather than teaching mm -hmm. and trying to get into students' minds, the importance of that, which linked with the Vygotsky get, making connections. So for, I was six years at Countersilk College. I had three children at that, during that time, so I was quite part-time. But we were putting into practice, producing resources, lots of independent work, lots of paired work and group work to see whether the role of the teacher might change and people might be more active. After that we moved up to Sheffield where I was rather shocked because most classes were still taught whole class teaching in serried rows which were very different but at that time the schools council's projects had just started and were quite powerful in um, Sheffield. So the third influence I think was the schools getting in contact uh, with the schools council projects, the GYSL, Geography of the Young School Leavers, and the 16 to 19, which depended on resources. And uh, groups of teachers from different schools in Sheffield got together, produced local resources, produced resources that they could use, and then they became exam syllabuses as well. So it wasn't, and the people who directed those emphasised not only inquiry for 
field work, but inquiry in the classroom. And I think that was the first time where I became conscious of inquiry. So all this had led to a, a notion, and um, particularly um, mentioned there Eleanor Rawling, who was director, I think, of the 16 to 19 project. She had this route for inquiry, which included not only factual information, which is what geography was thought to be, and, and uh, verifiable knowledge, but controversial issues, values inquiries, where there might be different views. So I think those three things together gradually, I, I suppose you're building your ideas all the time. And then I worked as a PGC tutor. Oh, then, I, then I actually retrained as a maths um, teacher because then there was a glut of teachers. And I learned quite a bit from that as well, teaching a different subject. Mm. Um, I didn't like it because there wasn't... I didn't like just teaching skills. I like applying those skills to some actual stuff, a geographical content. Um, and then as my, I uh, kept on developing my ideas as a PGC tutor, partly through contact with Eleanor Rowling, um, partly through research, and then uh, Chris Spencer, who was in the psychology department, introduced me to effective learning. So gradually, I can't claim credit for any of this, it's all these other people who've influenced me, and you take ideas from them and develop your own. But that's the key, is to take ideas from other people and, and shape it. Yeah. and continue to shape it, which I think is, is what you've done. I remember the GYSL material coming out and thinking, this is just amazing and so different yes. from anything that I'd used yeah. before. There, was a, there were sheets on, I think it was Park Hill. It was certainly one of the Yeah, the, the streets in the sky. Yes, yeah. and it was just an amazing resource. Yeah. Absolutely was, fascinating. And that was because there were lots of Sheffield teachers involved and they produced... Um, stuff that's Park Hill Flats are in Sheffield and uh, they produced things that would be relevant to students in Sheffield yeah but it's like you say it's a, it's a complete shift because the learning through inquiry uh, just con it really contrasted with that transmission yeah. approach to to teaching and the students were very passive yeah in that one of the first things that they gave me the SEN department I don't think they were called that in those days, passed to me was um, a comprehension exercise. So it's a much simpler level than you were talking about. But it was, um, it was Lewis Carroll gobbledygook, really. Mm. And you could get 10 out of 10. Have you understood any yeah. of what... Yeah. Well, obviously you haven't understood any of it because it was all nonsense words, but you still got 10 out of 10 out of yeah. it. And, and that was really powerful for me. So that led you to crystallising all your ideas yeah. for an inquiry approach. Yeah. And then I think when I was a PGC tutor, I think in my, I had you encouraged to do research and the, the national curriculum came in and I think it was Baker said, and all schools will have a standardised curriculum. And through visiting the schools that I did on, on, with students on teaching practice, there was King Edwards, which was very resource-based. There was a school in Doncaster, which was all lots of individual learning, very inquiry-based. And then there were other schools, perhaps I won't mention their names, that were completely traditional still. And I thought, how can all these schools end up teaching the same way? And so that, that was my first research project where um, I interviewed them and they just interpreted the curriculum very differently. So I realised that what happened in the classroom was an interpretation 
rather than just a translation of the national curriculum. So the inquiry school still went on doing inquiry. King Edward still went on using lots of resources. They've been involved in GYSL and 1619 project. And the traditional school just changed, stays as it was. You said somewhere, I can't remember where I read that, about how different people understand different things from the term geographical inquiry. And I think that was in... Oh, I it was in your Geographical Inquiry article in Teaching Geography. It was the 2010 yeah. one. So what do you understand then by Geographical Inquiry? Well, from, from that first curriculum thing, then I got interested in what people understood. And they were, some said, oh, it's just fieldwork. Others, it has to be hypothesis tense, this quantitative idea. Um, some said, oh, it has to be independent. Um, and I think of it as a, a broad term embracing all of that. It can be field work, it can be in the classroom, but it has to have certain essential elements. And one of those is an investigative attitude to knowledge, a questioning attitude to knowledge, and seeing knowledge as answering questions that geographers are interested in, not knowledge as just something to be transmitted. And it had to have evidence because I saw geographical knowledge, the claims that geography makes is based on evidence. So um, it had to have data. And then right from my first teaching, it had to, the students had to make, have to make sense. So it's a whole process, but it could include both fieldwork, classroom, very strongly guided, and the school's council influenced me in this, they had... Um, one end of the spectrum where it was very teacher-led and then the other end where it was all uh, individual projects and things. And it could encompass all that, but the essential thing is it's investigative. It sees geography as something to be investigated. I read Graham Butt's review of uh, of the book. He says, writing in an accessible and readable style, you have succeeded in presenting a comprehensive commentary on the role and function of inquiry learning in geography. I think that every budding geography teacher should be reading geography through inquiry. I think it's just absolutely fascinating. But he also talks about being mindful of the axiom that teaching is essentially a research-based profession. You helpfully offer one or two suggestions for research in each of the 21 chapters. So how important is research for you? Is it for for teachers to engage with research? Well, one of the essential bits of inquiry I haven't mentioned earlier is that people reflect on what they're doing. So I think some of it is very informal, kind of the beginnings of thinking and asking questions about your own practice. But I think the reason I put those questions in the book published in 2013 was at that stage, lots of PGC students were getting, I don't know if they still are, master's credits from their PGC course, which wasn't the case when I was a PGC tutor, and then wanted to go on to do master's and do research. So it was a time when there seemed to be a need for practising teachers to do small bits of research. And it was every single chapter I did, I think, we need to know more about this. I haven't researched at all. It would be nice if people investigated how this works out in practice so it was driven by those um, master's credits and a lot of uh, teachers more teachers doing masters than 
did them previously and been encouraged to do PhDs. Mm. That's where that came from. One of the things that I found really powerful, (laughs) when I first joined the GI, I'd been teaching for 30 years, and the first project was a project in conjunction with maths departments that I was, this, this was one I was leading, on the geography of disease and risk. I was working with Durham University, the maths department, and we did a cross project with maths teachers and geography teachers. And I wanted to set up an activity that was a bit of a mystery and a bit of an inquiry. And I, and I based it around a, a measles outbreak that was based on the Steiner community. And they'd gone to a conference, I think in Portugal, got the disease, come back to the UK, and then spread out to wherever they'd come from in their various communities. And measles burst out in these communities, or around these communities. And it didn't have the pattern of ordinary measles, because that should have burst out in the whole community. It just burst out in in points around the UK. And it took them a while to work out what was going on. And I thought, this is going to be brilliant for geographers. And I remember you having a look at it and saying, where's the geography in that? Because I hadn't mapped it. Oh, how cheeky of me. <laughs> but it was, it was perfect. It, and, it, and I just had a rethink. I, well, I, have to, I have to look at this in terms of where they started from, where they went to, how it spread. Haggis diffusion. It, it, and it turned, turned something that was a reasonably good activity but lacking geography into something that was really quite powerfully geographical and I just would like you to summarise I think because you you gave a lecture in 2011 at the GA and it it dealt with the issue of what makes the geography lesson good and I, I, I use that now all the time I always sit anything that goes on against that lecture so just Tell us what makes a geography lesson good. I think it has to answer the kinds of questions that geographers ask. Because geography lessons give students the opportunity to see the world differently and to benefit from the way geographers have investigated it. And they ask what, where, why, how, how processes work. And perhaps your uh, measles thing didn't emphasise the where enough or the how. And I think increasingly with the values inquiries, um, what ought to happen and what might happen um, uh, questions that are important now. So good geography has to address the kind of questions that geographers ask to try and understand the world. Because I don't think geography is there just to be found. I think it's shaped through the questions that geographers ask. And they're different questions now from when I was at university, when the values element wasn't there so much. Um, It was the what and the why and the how. Um, Then there has to be evidence to answer these questions. It can't just be through odd Twitter accounts or um, made-up quotations or anything. I'm very much against uh, speech bubbles in books that are made up by authors, or I've seen them recently in exam papers as well. There has to be real evidence backing up how we find out the answers to these questions. We have to be scrupulous about that, I think. I'm critical about the evidence, so some evidence might show, say, for example, the glaciers in Europe are melting, but it's it's wrong 
to say that they're all melting because actually the ones in Norway, there are a few in Norway that are increasing because of warmer air there. So we have to qualify, aren't there, the evidence. So we have to be really critical about the evidence we use. And um, I said there were three things that you had to have to make a geography less. You had to have que uh, questions, you had to have evidence, and then you had to have some way of making sense of it, um, understanding, making connections. And there's something in the new Ofsted um, framework where it's not the memorising of isolated, they put a bit too much emphasis in my mind on memory, but it's not memorising isolating facts that's important, it's making connections, trying to make sense of the world. So um, geography has to make sense as well, and through developing concepts, theories, the other thing I saw you do one time was it was challenging stereotypes. It was a presentation on Italy, and uh, and uh, I know you're a, an Italy phobe. Is that the right word? <laughs> I know you you take your Italian lessons seriously. Isn't a phobe the, the other? Is that the wrong way around? Yes, the other way around. Yes, it's the other way around. <laughs> um, and and you talked about. The danger, it, it was the danger of a single story because you, you talked about the north and Which the south. Which isn't the quote from me. It's no, from, yeah, that's yeah. from Chimamanda yeah. Ngozi, mm. isn't it? Um, it's not that that story's untrue, but it creates stereotypes that, yeah. that we as geographers need to, need to challenge. What was, the, what was that about Italy that you... Well, when the first national curriculum came out, Certain countries were uh, selected for study, and Italy was one of them. And most of the textbooks chose to study Italy, and they had to do regional variations. And the book that sold the most was Key Geography by David Wolf, And he uh, presented the north of Italy and the south of Italy in the book with illustrations and information. And uh, the students had exercises to compare them. And southern Italy was represented or presented as, it wasn't even true, as subsistence, an area of subsistence farming. And there might have been some subsistence farming. And then they had pictures of subsistence farming and quotes of subsistence farming from some made up. And then I went down to, uh, when I gave that lecture, I went down to Sainsbury's and I bought as many things as I could that came from southern Italy. I bought olive oil, I bought oranges, I bought um, whatever, other, lots of things. And I said, what kind of subsistence farming can produce all this? You know, the, the vegetables, the fruit, the olive oil, this all comes from commercialised farming in and what was in the book was probably 40 years out of date you know southern Italy had been poor but it had developed into um, most of the food exports from Italy came from from the south from this uh, food oh mozzarella cheese came from um, developed factories in the south and there were industries there as well, but he, he represented it as non-industrial, um, non. I think four or so. Someone had just opened. A, was it Fiat had opened a big factory down there? So the information was wrong and produced a stereotypical picture of Italy, which I'm afraid still exists. I'm uh, still go on studying Italian, and it's still in some books written for 
English people to learn Italian. These images are a bit of a stereotypical thing, and that's dangerous. But I think there's another stereotype now, which is common, which is about Bangladesh. So Bangladesh is often used as a case study for flooding cyclones. And it's a wonderful thing, and everything again is low-lying. And if you look on the website and look for case studies of Bangladesh, that's what you get. And when I've done INSEP for teachers, CPD, I've done something called intelligent guesswork, and they have to guess the life expectancy of various countries. And I've never done it. I, I did it most recently, last May, I think. I've never, ever done it without Bangladesh being selected as one of the bottom three. I asked them to identify the top three and the bottom three, and I've never done it without them not select, uh, where nobody selects South Africa. But in fact, the life expectancy in Bangladesh is 70-something. It's approaching what we are in England now. Um, and everyone's startled. I said, but before I reveal the actual figure, I say, why? And they just say, floods. And so it's a single story, and it's accidental and accidental. It's not wrong that there are floods in Bangladesh. And then you say, well, how does that affect life expectancy? And they say, oh, well, the crops are really... No, and this and the houses all collapse. And they're all this is presented as an absolute disaster. And presenting case studies is has a danger of presenting a single story about a country and uh, Bangladesh oh, and it's only ever on the news you never see anything on Bangladesh on the television news unless there's a lot of places unless there's some disaster there so that's when you see Bangladesh on the news so it's reinforced in lots of ways for geography teachers who might watch the news even if their students don't um, that Bangladesh is a bit of a basket case mm -hmm. but in fact it's developed a lot <laughs> I think the message from fact from this is that we have a negative view generally and that I think the press have a more negative view than than geography teachers yeah. Yeah. Um, because of the the material that we're presented with and, it's, and Africa it continues a even with stuff online on uh, webs if you look up Bangladesh case studies you find they're all negative mm. I wanted to ask you as well about the Silk Roads, because I, I've just been reading the the Peter Frankopan book, and I know that you've been doing some some looking at the geography of that too. So talk us through that. Well, I haven't read the first book, and I read the second book. Um, I think it was prompted by an article in Teacher History where a school had got Peter or a, school, a group of schools had got Peter. Franco Pan, the author of these amazing books, to actually go and help them develop a unit of work on um, Silk Roads for history. I thought, gosh, there's an opening for the... the G we ought to use experts to come in and help develop. So you've got the um, geographical knowledge based on evidence. And what struck me about the, f the first chapter of the new Silk Roads is just amazing. It's about globalisation. And he quotes going to a football match between Arsenal and Sheffield Wednesday in, I think it was 1900, where only six of the players in the teams were not English. And contrasting that with nowadays, where the majority of them wouldn't be born in England, neither would the managers, neither would the owners. And then he goes on to uh, 
other elements of the economy, ownerships of hotels, who's uh, the influence of how we are connected with all these other uh, countries. Um, and it's, it's a geographical chapter. Although he's a historian, he's got this uh, amazing breadth of knowledge and vision about what's happening in the world, and particularly the influence of China everywhere, which I think could get more attention in geography. Well, I think that whole area is a neglected area. As I listened, because I've got the... I've got the audio book as well now. There are vast swathes of history that I don't know, but, but the geographical context of it all mm. has passed me by. Yeah. The, uh, the riches that are in Kyrgyzstan and those areas. I went to, um, two years ago this was, I was with the IGO, the International Geography Olympiad team, and I went to talk to the, the boys from Kazakhstan this is the danger of a single story for me. They showed me some photos, and I was I was absolutely amazed. The the cities are just amazing, and and I wasn't I I must say I wasn't aware that it was quite that developed and quite that impressive. So you're right. I think there's a whole area of of geography and and interconnections that well I was certainly behind the times on. You went to Singapore as well, didn't you? With uh, they wanted to have a, a different approach to learning. I think is that yes, right? That's right. That because it, it was very interesting because it was a time when our government was saying uh, we need to learn from these high achieving jurisdictions, and yet Singapore invited people in six different subject areas. It wasn't just geography. They wanted to change their O level to one which um, developed an inquiry approach, they spelled it with an I, and they invited someone for history, someone for geography, someone for design technology, probably someone for science. I didn't meet the other people. And I just got this email out of the blue, it was after I'd written my first book, would, would I like to go and do a course for teachers? And they mentioned all these dates, and I said, which date do you want? And they wrote back and said, all of them. It was in 2011. So I, first of all, I had to go out in February. Unfortunately, I was on crutches by then because I'd broken my leg badly. <laughs> and um, I had to do a course for people who work for the government and train teacher trainers and everything else and present my ideas to them. It's a bit nerve-wracking. But it had to be, I think I had ideas of what their content of the syllabus would be. And then I had to develop it. And then they worked on what I'd done and um, between us we then developed a course which um, I ran ten times. Were they resistant to start with to the ideas or were they open? No, because the people who I worked with to start with in the government, that's what they wanted. And before that, in this high-achieving jurisdiction, children had learnt stuff parrot fashion and then reproduced it in the exams and nearly every course I ran in the questions at the end was will we still be able will our students still be able to learn their answers by rote their model answers and reproduce them in the exam and I said well it depends how it's assessed but I shouldn't think so because they'll be replying to data there'll be data you know if it's assessed 
assessment shouldn't allow that to happen, to just get marks from learning something which doesn't necessarily apply to the question. So they wanted a shift from um, learning as memory to something more active. How did they evaluate that then? How did they, how did they know that it was successful? Well, I then, in the 10 courses, I think I trained all the teachers, geography teachers in Singapore. They came and we, in groups, because it was all group work. But what we did is that each idea, we developed an activity. Um, and they did the activities themselves and they discussed them. And all those activities I then put into my second book, which was based on the Singapore um, work. And... Um, they had to decide how they would use them. And at the last uh, course I did, um, two of the authors of the textbook were there, um, and they were going to have to write the textbook to fit the new, new syllabus. And then since then, they've also got, if you look on Singapore government website, they've introduced inquiry. It's really strongly emphasised, both in the lower secondary school and the primary school. At the same time as this country has removed it from the national curriculum in uh, 2013, I think. So the wording, although they want to encourage curiosity and a lasting fascination or something, the word inquiry doesn't appear in the present national curriculum. So did their results fall as a result of that? Because that, it, that's more challenging than going away and learning it by I or, think by rote. the way they work, they're... They're terribly motivated and uh, work very hard. And the teachers, I, I heard that the teachers were all graded about how good they were. I think they minded a lot about the results and they would study the new way it was assessment uh, assessed and teach accordingly. So I don't know because um, I've had some contact since. And then I went back for a conference in Singapore, and they knew I, the people I'd worked with, I'd got quite friendly with, knew I was coming, so sorry it was come and do some updating, so I went. But they were generally incredibly enthusiastic. They didn't resist it at all, once they had activities they could use. But when, when the, one time, one of the teachers, they asked me to send all the PowerPoints, all the resources, everything I was going to use in these courses. I've never worked so hard in my life before and after, uh, during. It start, the courses started at eight in the morning and went on till six. And I was doing the lot. It was like doing the GA conference, but doing every session <laughs> solidly for a week and from eight till six. But one teacher, because I used to send out the thing and uh, my what I was going to say in the PowerPoint. And he complained because I'd said things a bit differently. Because the people I'd, who had been in the first government group, who I became very friendly with, after each session, we would then, I, by the end of each course, we'd reflect on it and say, well, perhaps we'll do it next time we'll do it like this. So we were always tweaking it a bit. So the original resources that went out were tweaked a bit. And I did a, there was a role play I did, and we did it ten times, but each time it was slightly uh, tweaked, and it was really good. The people were, uh, Ch uh, Singapore's got a mixed population of Chinese, Malay, and Indian, and it was only the last courses I 
last few courses, I learnt their names. I went and studied them in the hotel. I took photographs and learnt their names. And they just thought I was very good at learning names, but I'm not. But they were so that I could uh, pick on people. And um, But they, they were really, really enthusiastic. I'm not surprised, but... Um, it was I, the most exciting thing I've, I've done, in a way, because it, uh, it was challenging, because it was for a syllabus when classroom inquiry couldn't mean just going, doing your own thing, because it was a, a set thing. But there were, they, there were ways of, they called need to know sparking curiosity. So they wanted ideas for sparking curiosity. And then uh, I think it was using data. I forget what, they had different names for them. Um, but they took on the three, the four things that were in learning through inquiry. And it's now in the um, Singapore curriculum from primary right the way through those four elements. So it's very satisfying that. <laughs> so what are you up to now then? Because you just never stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the latest thing I've done is a chapter for a book on um, geographical education for a digital world. And I consulted Alan Parkinson about this for some information. I said, I'm the most unlikely person to do this. And he wrote back and he said, yes, you are. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not on any social media or anything. But I do use um, Google a lot. And I'd been at a meeting where they were discussing this book. I wasn't one of the authors. And they were all saying all these whizzy things they were going to do with technology. And I commented, I said... It, this, each chapter does need a bit of a critical edge as well, not just, oh, you could do these whizzy things, you need to ask what and why and is it worth it? Because that's the question, is it, you know, is it worthwhile? Um, anyway, about a month after that meeting, I had a, an email saying, will you write a chapter? So I've, it's going to be published in the summer. So it's really on... Oh, I remember Eleanor Rowling said, well, it doesn't make any difference, it's just information. And I said, I think it's significantly different, getting information. So I explored that in the chapter, how getting information from when I started teaching from authoritative textbooks written by geographers who seem to be sure of their knowledge to having access to everything on the internet, or on, on Google and uh, and then the danger of misinformation, false information, fake news, and um, what opportunities and what the challenges were. But the opportunities were interesting because in the 80s and 90s, Bechter thought it all, would all lead to independent learning, uh, personalised learning, meeting the needs of every child, and that the whole classroom situation would change. And I've, I haven't done research, and I'm not a researcher anymore, but I did do informal investigations through various PGC tutors. And what I found was that it, far from that, most classrooms, and I discovered this through being external examiners, were more formal, and it was all PowerPoint, and uh, there wasn't much independent learning. There weren't many classrooms where kids used computers all the time. It was the teacher who touched the keyboard, the teachers who made all the decisions. And um, so the possibilities that were envisaged in the 80s and 90s hadn't, hadn't happened, and except in international schools and independent schools where they encouraged people to bring their own 
um, that bring their own uh, things and gave them choice and encouraged them to use it. Uh, only last week I heard Nick Gibbs saying that he was against children having mobile phones in lessons, whereas the, some of the teachers actually encouraged it because they wanted them to be able to look up, not for computers to be something special, but to looking up something on the spot as being an integral part of studying geography. Mm -hmm. But that was in, the only schools where I discovered that happened was independent schools and uh, international schools. One of the things that we were looking at on the critical thinking course was about um, fake news and uh, how plausible it all is now. So you do have to be a bit careful. Yeah. One of the things I was using was the um, the flying penguins, uh, Terry Jones. Yeah. It was a BBC spoof. Yeah. And they'd spent hours and hours. If you look at the background to it, they spent hours looking at guillemots who have a similar shape to try and make sure that when they... The birds flew when the penguins flew. They did. They looked as though they could really be taking that sort of shape. And there's a South American tree octopus website as well. That uh, I don't know if you've looked at that one. Some teacher put the whole thing together with resources to try and uh, reinforce the criticality of thought that students need when they launch into an internet uh, res research project yeah. so that's a that's a problem yeah did you come across that in your writing did you yeah, well, that? then there's a european um digi competencies for edu education for citizenship and they think and the first part of that is on data handling it's all incredibly well quote all that it's all incredibly relevant and they also write about misinformation or disinformation but i think rather than fake news i think another problem is the sources of information because you get there are lots of think tanks now with quite harmless sounding or neutral sounding names. There's a Heritage Foundation in America which is committed to free, free, encouraging uh, free trade, no restrictions, and it seems to be against environmental protection. Um, and I think they sound okay, so I think it's knowing which websites or even newspapers, if you get all the information from The Guardian about Heathrow Airport, you might get a different thing than if you got it from The Times or The Telegraph mm. or something else. So newspapers, although the journalists speak the truth, mostly, um, serious journalists, what they select to present is different. So if there's something comes out on Heathrow Airport, how it's reported in The Telegraph and Guardian is different. And so, again, it's the danger of a single source as mm. well as a single story. And I'm not sure, I remember you commenting the other day, teachers haven't got time to do all that. But I think acknowledging the source and encouraging, certainly by A-level thing, to be aware, or before that, aware, for teachers to be aware of which sources are reliable and which aren't. But the, uh, things things spread through social media that are completely wrong. And even if they are reliable, sometimes if it's an image, it still depends on which way the photographer was pointing when she took the picture. Yeah. What would it look differently if you pointed it? Yes, well, there's fake images. Yes, images. Yes. But there was something the other day about how, what proportion of fish are thrown back into the sea, and it was quoted as what British fishermen have to do. 
and it was misquoted. The figure was right for Europe, but not for Britain. And it's things like that are very difficult. You can't expect teachers to select them all the time, but you hope that somehow or other, with getting armies of students also looking up fact-checked. The problem is that politicians can fire some of these figures out, yeah. and then it's, it hangs there in the ether, and they, they can pick up. They can use data to, in oh, different yeah. ways to, to make their points. Well, yeah, actually. but it's selective, yeah. yeah. And I suppose necessarily everything that's in a geography book or presented on the geo is selective. It can't be everything. And there, there are dangers in, in there have always been dangers, but I think with in the chap the chapter I've written I think suggests there are more challenges now. So if you were to summarise your career, which hasn't finished yet and there's a long way still to go. Well I think it's <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> what do you think is the most significant thing that you've done? What's the thing that's given you most satisfaction? Uh, being a PGC tutor and seeing quite a lot of those students at GA conferences and still doing things. People like Richard Holloway is an ex-PGC student. Uh, he's quoted in the chapter because way back, whenever it was, they all started using computers. I, I start the chapter like this. It all started, had to use computers. I said, what was the most significant aspect of you using computers was it these huge disks holding loads of data was it being able to draw graphs or anything and he said I think it was the internet uh, Google or internet and we all looked around and we said what but he was right I think um, so seeing ex-PGC students three of whom are now PGC tutors one at Reading one at Leicester one at Sheffield I think there might be another one somewhere Every time I pass Sheffield Hallam, this is a funny thing, I met a student, ex-student, on a walk, a music walk, and she said, oh, uh, hello, Margaret, I haven't seen you for ages. And I, she's now, I said, you're still teaching geography? She said, no, I'm careers at, uh, in the careers department at Sheffield Hallam University. She said, you know what I remember about your course? On the wall, you had this thing, only connect. You had to connect with people's minds, and you did all this group work. And she said, that's how I work. And she said, and we, that's what we call it, uh, connect. If you go up from the station and you see Sheffield Hallam, you'll see connect careers. So we, I called it after you. That was quite pleasing. So PGC students, and then the work I did in Singapore was completely gratifying, and the reception I got there and the ongoing contact with that was very, very rewarding. And then the other thing I haven't said that influenced me, I've got eight grandchildren and, I and three children. I learned from them as well, the questions, the fact that they're inquisitive, that they ask questions, they draw me up a question I can't answer. You can ask your next iPod. My five-year-old granddaughter asked me, what is there after the end of space, Grandma? And I can't answer it. And uh, so I said, well, how would you find out? <laughs> and so you learn from, you're just learning all the time and modifying your views, but valuing curiosity. Well, you've had an influence on my teaching right the way through because we, at Aston, we had so many teachers who'd gone through your PGCE classes. I'm too old. Jim Jay was my uh, my tutor. Yeah. Geography with a little latitude. 
but uh, the excitement that they brought was palpable uh, when they when they joined the department and continued on likes of Giles Hopkirk. It's been uh, it's been a a long and very pleasurable journey. Well, thank you, Margaret. Thank I've you for giving really me the opportunity <laughs> to reminisce. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed today's session. And, um, well, next week I'll be talking to Professor Peter Jackson. So there's another treat in store. But thank you very much, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you.